0: Welcome back to iGen Politics. This is a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Hsieh. I'm currently a sophomore at UCLA, was elected as the youngest delegate for Joe Biden, and also co-host this podcast.
1: I'm Jill Wine-Banks, the author of The Watergate Girl, based on my experience as a Watergate prosecutor, soon to be celebrating the 50th anniversary. I am also um, the host of this show with Victor, as well as... Hashtag Sisters in Law podcast with other wonderful uh, legal analysts from MSNBC. And I am the person who wears hashtag Jill's pins. This pin is very special for our guest today. It is the word Trump, where the U has been transformed into a hammer and sickle. And as we are going to be talking about strongmen and authoritarianism, that seemed like an appropriate pin. Around the world... The forces of authoritarianism are presenting growing challenges to the survival of democracies. We've seen it with the ongoing Russian invasion of Ukraine. We've seen it in Hungary with Viktor Orban and in France, where the far-right extreme politician uh, Marie Le Pen is posing a real threat to Emmanuel Macron. And we will soon be seeing the results of that election. But perhaps most alarmingly, we are also witnessing many elements of authoritarianism at home in America with voter suppression and banning books rampant. We have witnessed an attempt to topple our democracy that culminated in violence on January 6th, but continues to this day with the lies about election fraud. So far our institutions have held, but we are increasingly seeing Republican elected officials and candidates acting to diminish the very foundation of our democracy.
0: It's a scary reality and one that every American needs to recognize is happening here. To help us break down authoritarianism, the threat it poses in America, and what can be done to resist it, we are joined by Ruth Ben-Ghiat, the author of Strong Men, Mussolini to the Present, which examines how illiberal leaders use corruption, violence, propaganda, and machismo to stay in power— In addition to being an author, Ruth is also a professor of history and Italian studies at New York University, an opinion columnist for MSNBC, a frequent commentator on MSNBC, CNN, and other media outlets, and she's also a graduate of my current university, UCLA. It will be an informative conversation, so let's get right to it. Thank you, Ruth, so much for joining us today.
2: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: And we are very happy to have you with us, and we have so many questions, we can't wait to get into it. Let's start with your book, Strongmen, which talks about how strongmen rise to power, how they succeed in keeping power, and how they fall. So we're going to dive into all of those, but first I want to talk about uh, the elements of the content of authoritarianism at home and abroad. And so that our listeners and viewers can understand where we're at now, I want to ask a series of background questions that maybe we can just go through briefly um, so that we can get to the stuff about the, the events today at home and abroad. Um, and the first question is, what do you mean by strongmen?
2: So I I view strongmen as a subset of authoritarian leaders, and I'm using authoritarian rather broadly. Uh, These are people who wreck wreck a democracy. I, I chose people in my book who wrecked a democracy or damaged it. And the strongman is somebody who uses these authoritarian tools of kind of propaganda and corruption, myth of national greatness, violence, but they also um, use machismo and they use kind of hyper masculinity as a tool of political legitimacy. So uh, that's that the people I chose to focus on were the ones where the way they use their bodies and their ideologies about male power uh, were very important. Well, that's
1: very interesting. And let's. Let's talk about you mentioned specifically Mussolini, and is that because he is a model of the strongmen or one of the first of the strongmen who destroyed a democracy?
2: Yeah, he Mussolini gets eclipsed by Hitler for for pretty good reasons, but actually he, you know, he already declared the he declared the first dictatorship in 1925. And, you know, Lenin had died in Russia in nineteen twenty-four, but Stalin hadn't consolidated his power. So Mussolini was the one who, let you know, the, the communists were also watching, he, and Hitler was watching. And he was the one who worked it out, uh, this kind of how to destroy democracy. Um, he was a prime minister in a democracy for three years before he declared a dictatorship. And he um, was a journalist, so he was incredibly skillful with propaganda. He used violence. He kind of pioneered all of these tools and the way they work together, including hyper stripping his shirt off, um, wrestling wild animals, many things that Putin does today. The two bookends are kind of Mussolini and Putin for this style of using your body.
1: God, we can only hope that it's a bookend and that Putin is the last <laughs> of them. But uh, of course, as soon as you said stripping off his shirt, I immediately focused on the picture of Putin on a horse, shirtless. Oh, um let's talk about tactics that strongmen use. And has that changed since the time of Mussolini? Or are we seeing Mussolini to Putin being just one continuum of the same tactics?
2: I mean, many of the the, 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 the book was, uh, the reason I wanted to go over 100 years is I wanted to see what stays the same and what changes. And it's that was a very interesting exercise in that if we take propaganda, Many of the kind of the, the menu of propaganda where you have censorship, uh, you have creation of an alternate reality, you have leader cults, all of that stays the same. And in fact, this was fascinating. The rules of the personality cult have not changed at all for 100 years uh, because you have to be the man of the people. You have to be relatable. You have to have, um, if you're successful, you have a direct bond through the media of the time with your people, uh, unmediated bond. So you have rallies. You have, uh, you know, Mussolini had newsreels. Trump used Twitter. um, But you're also Superman. So you're every man, but you're also the man above all other men. You're the man who gets away with crime. You're lawless. And so the institutionalization of lawlessness and being the man who has everything but yet gets away and is untouchable, and this applies to Putin very much, that, that dualism of every man and superman has not changed at all. Now, obviously, some things like the way the media, the information technologies, and media technologies have changed. And today, what we could say is social media kind of hugely accelerates a lot of the dynamics of propaganda. Um, but uh, it was it was fascinating to see how much has not changed. You know, uh,
1: let's define propaganda because I just don't want our audience in the dark. Is propaganda just lies that are said often and loudly, and where oftentimes, I would say, pointing to Russia now, alternative sources of information are cut off so that the only information, the people being ruled here is that, or is, am, is there a better definition of propaganda?
2: No, propaganda is a, set of, is a set, of, uh, tool, set of strategies. One of them is definitely the debasement of the notion of truth. So uh, that the the you have a you you furnish an alternate reality made up of uh, lies that you need people to believe and take as truth, and you basically create a reality the reality you need to stay in office the reality you need to have people see you as competent because being seen as competent is very important. So you have that, but I also mention in the book that. Um, silence and censorship is equally important. So I have a line that strong men disappear bodies, you know, they disappear people, they kill them and put them away in prisons, but they also disappear facts and entire bodies of knowledge that uh, conflict with their goals. So, you know, you see, so, so silence and absence, what cannot be said, who's not there you think about today, uh, any critic of Putin, uh, Alexei Navalny, who was the, I have a whole series of anti-corruption um, activists who are put away or killed uh, throughout the century around the world. So it's important to, to look at propaganda as both noise, uh, you know, lies, but also silence. This
1: is very frightening. And if I thought Donald Trump read... I would say that your book <laughs> yes. was the outline of how he would proceed, but I don't think you read, so we're probably safe in that you're not giving him any ideas. Uh, would you put him in the category of modern-day strongman?
2: Yeah, in fact, my book is the first to place him in uh, the context of 100 years of authoritarianism with the caveat, it's not a book of comparative politics, so I'm not right. saying that Trump is like Hitler. It's a, because the book is about how authoritarianism, like every political system, evolves. And so today, you you don't, in general, I mean, there's North Korea and China, but you don't shut down elections. It's less common. It's like Viktor Orban. You keep them going, but you, what's going on in our country too, the assault on the electoral system, the machinery of elections, so that you can kind of tilt and shape the electoral system to get the results you need. Um, And so that's one difference today, but the things that Trump did his entire, his his personalization of politics, his loyalty requirements, his bullying, and his superb propagandist skills. He's a very, very skilled propagandist, uh, information warrior. And so many many things that he does uh, were recognizable to me instantly. Like I started writing about him in 2015. The minute I saw those rallies, I I started writing for CNN. I must have written a hundred op-eds on Trump, and I covered the 2016 election for CNN Uh, because unfortunately, uh, you know, when he and he was doing all the things that democratic with a small d candidates don't do but authoritarians do like preach violence so when he january 2016 Mm. he said i could stand on fifth avenue and shoot someone uh and i wouldn't lose any followers well democrats don't do that they don't they don't place themselves as approximate to violence and say they're above the law but authoritarians like duterte he had done that and bolsonaro so that was the company (laughs) that Trump was keeping. And that I felt it was important to warn Americans what was on the horizon.
0: So I can't even imagine a possibility of Trump holding power in 2024. And I'm wondering, so it's interesting to think about the tools that strongmen have now versus 60 years ago. And you mentioned the evolution of social media. Now, I'm wondering if there are any other tools you can think of that modern day strongmen use um, now versus 60 years ago.
2: Yeah, one interesting thing. So I added a chapter on corruption because it's, it's absolutely fundamental. And it was obviously very germane to what I saw going on with Trump. And I don't only mean financial corruption and deals, but uh, using you know, public office to make deals, often with other despots. So Trump had you know, Bill Barr as attorney general you know, making deals for Erdogan and this kind of thing. It's also kind of moral corruption which explains how Trump was able to, um, you know, kind of domesticate the GOP and make it into his personal tool. But one interesting thing that happens today, um, there, well, t- two, two factors have changed. One is that in the 20th century, dictators, it was, it was a little more straightforward. They just had their money in Swiss bank accounts. The, the money they stole from their people, it was in Swiss bank accounts. But in the 21st century, and and the the reaction against Putin after he invaded Ukraine have shown a light on this. You have the whole offshore, uh, you know, financial architecture where these people uh, and their cronies store their money. But one difference, which is uh, also was uh, operative under Trump, is that. If you have uh, very wealthy people in your cabinet, so even Trump had a lot of uh, multimillionaires, and of course, Putin has his oligarchs, etc. You, you can't buy people off anymore, like in the older regimes, you used to be able to buy them off. So what you have to do, and that's where this compromise comes in, it's not the expectation of material gain that you hold over them because they don't need any money. A lot of them are billionaires or multimillionaires. It's what they stand to lose their reputations, their uh, prestige. And so that's how Compromat um, functions. And that's something that is uh, t- 21st century and the best, uh, people at this are people who either come from intelligence like Putin or Trump has been collecting dirt on people way before he came into politics. That's just how he operates. And so those people, so I look, I I kind of looked at the Trump administration, the way it functioned with the eyes of global autocracy. And I said, check, check, check. And so you had people like Elaine Chao and Steve Mnuchin. These are not people who are going to be bought off, but these are people who could be Uh, held in place and and made to toe the line with the promise of perhaps revealing things about them. So that's that's one change. And that goes under the corruption chapter.
0: Wow, that is so interesting. And we want to get into Trump more uh, later in the episode. Uh, But first, do you think strongmen make history or does history make strongmen?
2: Oh, good question. Um, I think it's a meeting of historical the right circumstances and personalities and what I mean by that is when one of the points of the book was to see patterns and one of the patterns is that when you have periods where society's gone through a lot of change social change where you know you have could be workers rights it could be racial emancipation gender equity a lot of rapid change. So some people find this fantastic, others feel that this is like an existential threat. So it's when you're in that space, and the original one of course was this huge disruption of World War I, uh, like, you know, threat to male authority after World War One. And that's when the savvy personalities appear on the horizon and they have success. And they know every so often, thank God it's not, you know, it's only uh, occasional, but then they do huge damage. They know how to market themselves and they know what to say to people to play on these anxieties. And so they pose as saviors of the victimized. Um, they pose as saviors. They're going to make things right. They're going to bring order back to society. And so what do they do? They crack down on you know, LGBTQ. They take away women's rights or, or just curtail women's autonomy. They you know, try and reverse racial emancipation. And so it's the meeting of these certain personalities who know how to do that at the right time.
0: So do you, i wonder what are the conditions that led to Donald Trump in the U.S., do you think?
2: Well, we were, given that, given this introduction, we were, uh, in retrospect, extremely well placed for somebody to come along and manipulate all these anxieties because we had eight years of the first African-American president. And many Americans didn't even think he should have ever been president. Now, and what happened during that time, you had legalization of same sex marriage. You had uh, gender integration in the military. Women entered combat, which, you know, could seem like that's been done in other countries decades ago, but we were getting toward, in many ways, a much more progressive model of society. And so, lo and behold, Trump comes up. And remember, he had been thinking of running for office for several times for many years, but the time was right, and Bannon canceled Steve Bannon canceled him. This is the right time. And he knew what to say because these people like Trump, they they say what people need to hear at that time. And because they have no morals, they have they're pure opportunists, they're purely transactional. They will they will be whatever you need them to be. So He's like, you're the forgotten and I'm going to, you know, kind of uh, not only I'm going to fix it, whatever ails you, but he posed as an open racist, as an open sexist. And so he was going to kind of um, repair these injuries to the traditional social order. Um, and and we, were, we were ripe for that, uh, for, the, for the right. And the GOP also, after the Tea Party had become a much more extremist party. And then what Trump did was to create a kind of big tent under his cult of personality for all these different kinds of extremists who all coalesced in Trumpism. Now,
1: you said he played the part of a racist and other things. Do you think he isn't actually uh, a racist or that he doesn't believe all of the horrible things, my definition, horrible, uh, things that he says
2: no he he has i mean what all of these guys have some core uh ideologies hate ideologies usually, and Trump has always been a racist, going back to the you know the central park uh so that is not a pretend he's always been a sexist he's but he's also somebody who used to be a democrat, and he clearly he you know there's a famous quote where he, from some years before where he said well republicans are dumber so they're easier to kind of bamboozle right i'm 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 paraphrasing yeah, no, that's, liberally that's pretty that.
1: accurate
0: yeah yeah
2: so so they have core they have core things like putin's always been a fanatic about russian victimization by the west but then they they're their talent is that they can change with the wind. And that's actually why another um, uh, continuity is that they get these very eclectic constituencies, people who like maybe in theory don't have much in common, like housewives, gangsters, priests, and they all do this from Mussolini, Berlusconi, Trump, uh, Putin too. And that's because they tell each, each group what they want to hear. And yet there's a core, there's always a core thing. And in Trump's case, it's racism, um, you know, sexism, that kind of stuff.
0: You mentioned personality a little uh, while back. And, um, you know, when I think of Trump, I think of the idea that you talked about having masculine rhetoric and tendencies, his MO seems to be not to be weak and to never admit failure. Do strongmen actually possess the masculine features that they purport to have, or do you think they're actually weak and fearful people?
2: Yeah, they, they, they are fundamentally brittle. They're insecure. That's why they have to strip their shirts off and we, we, the world couldn't have a better example of these two types of masculinity than Putin and Zelensky, um, for example. But they are actually, um, they're very, uh, they're very paranoid. They're very fearful. I think I have a phrase in my book. It says, uh, you know, God help us if the strongman's in a bad mood, which is most of the time. And they're very like mercurial. They're very impulsive. And, and they're actually very weak people. And, they, and because they're weak people, they have to compensate by being extremely brutal. And so that's also why they are not able to, uh, if they think their power is in decline, they're not able to leave office like a normal uh, democratic with small d leader because they become addicted to the power and they're like they're like uh, one of Mussolini's biographers, one of the only women, at the uh, like who grew up with Mussolini. She said that without his crowds, he was an empty shell, and that applies to many of these guys. So that's why if they think they're going to lose everything, it's not just that they fear prosecution—that's a big deal—but they also, it's like an existential threat to them to think that they're going to be a nobody, or even a nobody behind bars. <laughs> or have to go into exile and be forgotten. So they act uh, in ways that, that's the the chapter about their fall, they act in um, very reckless ways, sometimes if they think they're going down. So you, you mentioned Zelensky
1: and Putin in the same sentence, same phrase, so I just want to confirm that that was to contrast the true masculinity of Zelensky versus the whatever of Putin that would be, you, you weren't saying they were both. Yes, the same yeah you I just want to make that clear to our audience. I, I know you didn't mean that.
2: No, that that really the, the, the strong men, uh, it, you know, this is should be used between quotes, they're very fearful people and they fear that ultimately they fear their own people. That's why they use oppression against them. They use censorship And um, they're they're leaders who hide behind all of this illegal stuff that they do um, because they are driven by fear. And so Zelensky, uh, who was underestimated by everybody, comes forth uh, when his country is besieged and people, the Russians thought he would just leave. And instead he had shown, he's shown this like very resolute leadership that And that's been one of the, the strengths of Ukraine. He's been a real leader for his people versus Putin, who is stealing from his people, hiding from his people, uh, exploiting and jailing his people. It just really couldn't be more, more of a contrast.
1: Absolutely. And today I heard actually Zelensky was compared to Churchill, who really got his country through the war by convincing his people that there was no chance they were going to lose, which is... I think what Zelensky is mm-hmm. doing—it's—it's uh, it's quite amazing. But okay, so let's let's look at Putin some more. Um, he's clearly a strongman by your definition in terms of everything that you've mentioned. But how did he get there? And despite what we're all seeing now in places where there is still free news um, or freedom of the press, he's committing war crimes. He's losing in Ukraine, but his approval numbers are increasing, not decreasing, which I assume has to do with the silence of truth in Russia and his control of the sources of information, his jailing of Navalny. Um, Mm -hmm. And so talk about how Putin and all the other strongmen are able to hold on to their voters. And you've already mentioned corruption and violence and propaganda and machismo um, and, and I want to hear more about machismo too, because that's an interesting concept to me. So can you sort of fill us in a little more on that?
2: Yeah. So, um, what we're seeing now is all of those instruments of rule are being trotted out to, um, compensate, uh, and, and well, or to lessen the harm to Putin reputationally given that his military has performed badly and this whole war didn't go the way he wanted it to. And and so he's compensating, you know, uh, for con- like the failure of conventional military. And that's because partly is the military has been ravaged by his corruption. When you have a kleptocracy, uh, you know, the money doesn't go to the state institutions to replenish, to upgrade the military. It goes to Putin and his cronies. So we're seeing the, the toll of that. But war crimes and terror tactics are just part of the way that he wages war. He used, you know, uh, chlorine and sarin gas in in Syria. This is just what he does because these, just as there's no rule of law at home, these people don't care about diplomatic protocols, the rules of war. They just do what they need to do to win. But it's very interesting what's going on now in Russia because, uh, when you have external expansion in strongman history, you always have internal repression. So we're seeing uh, you know, a real concerted, organized effort to make sure that Russians don't, don't know the truth, so there's all the propaganda, uh, but also that any dissenters in public, and there are many, I mean, it's like 15,000 people have been arrested. It's probably much higher now. This is a number from a couple of weeks ago for protesting. Um, you can't even, you know, the latest uh, was in the news, a guy was with a box of books on war and peace, and you can't use the word war, so he was arrested. Um, and, of course, the high-profile arrests like Vladimir um, Kara-Murza, most recently, Washington Post columnist. So there's any critic is silenced. Um, ordinary people who protest are silenced. And and yet, uh, Putin can't really stop certain kinds of information. For example, uh, troops who are coming home are there's a, always a pipeline of information about what's really going on in the war. And there's always like resentment; these soldiers were brought there under false pretenses. So that's becoming more of a thing. So as as that the longer the war goes on, the more Putin's going to become repressive at home. And the other factor is elites. He's very, I'm sure, military, must be very upset with them. Think about economic elites. You know, half the globe has united against the, you know, the Russian economy is hurting from all the sanctions. So I think Putin's actually in a fairly precarious position in some ways. And he needs to uh, spin this as a victory. And so uh, he's, you know, he's got his plan B, which is his safe face plan. But he's using all of the instruments that autocrats always use, including the Kremlin is uh, releasing many stories about how his popularity is supposedly skyrocketing since the beginning of the war, because that's what happened when he annexed uh, Crimea in 2014. But it's certainly not happening now. So this is propaganda um, puffing up the personality cult. Interesting. And it seems to me
1: one of the things you mentioned is the people strongmen men surround themselves with. And you mentioned billionaires, which certainly was the case for Donald Trump and certainly is the case for Putin. Um, but there's also a certain amount of loyalty that they demand. I, 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 In my mind, I envision that cabinet meeting where he made the members of his cabinet grovel and say how wonderful he was. I mean, to me, it was mm-hmm. it was just so uncomfortable to to watch. Is that a common factor for
2: strongmen? Yeah, it, it's so interesting because America, even though you know he, he like Berlusconi in Italy, he didn't Trump didn't succeed in wrecking our democracy. He damaged it, but the rituals and the habits and the behaviors of his administration and the GOP uh, with him, all correspond, it was like in miniature, uh, a kind of textbook for what happens when you have an authoritarian personality in power. And so this constant need for loyalty, and and you could be loyal, look what happened to Mike Pence, you know, poker face, yes, yes, um, for years. And then if you do one thing, and in Pence's case, it was a big thing, you find yourself being chased by people who want to hang you. Um, and one of the things i found very interesting uh, in, there was a recent story uh, about, um, we're finding out, you know, with the January 6th, uh, how, how many people were involved on behalf of Trump, working very hard to, and I see January 6th as a leader cult operation. Both the grassroots people who came there to rescue their leader, who was deprived of his prize, and, and Trump spun that very well, but also all the, you know, uh, Senator Mike Lee. And most recently, we've had this text, you know, revelation of the texts that have come out and uh, Representative Chip Roy. And what's very interesting is these people were working overtime out of loyalty to Trump. So they're part of the Trump cult. And it's as though they didn't realize until the very end uh, how criminal and depraved Trump uh was or is, because there's a text on January 3rd from um, uh, Lee to Mark Meadows, who is Trump's chief of staff. And he says, I'm not sure that uh, the president is grasping the difference between what he wants us to do and what we actually can do. And I'm thinking, well, of course he grasp it, because the, the purpose of somebody like Trump is to engage, to, to corrupt you and to engage you in criminal acts that you never would have imagined doing. And that's what's happened to the whole GOP. Um, and it's very interesting a year later to read these documents of the, the, the lead up to January 6th and see how many people were in that Trump cult, loyal to Trump and, and, and were corrupted in that way. It's very sad for our society to, to see it, but it's very, they're very important testimonies.
0: The last element of your book is how strongmen fall. And um, you predicted that Trump wouldn't leave office in a quiet matter uh, because you put him in the category of authoritarians. And you said, quote, he's a strong uh, he's an authoritarian. They can't leave office. They don't have good endings and they can't leave properly. That's certainly been the case. So I'm wondering, can you explain that? And then also what the most common way that strongmen fall?
2: Yeah, um They. They, because it's like a psychological death for them to leave, and they're also really afraid of prosecution, Um, they, they, there's certain syndromes. Uh, One of them is if they feel that they, they're still in control, but they feel that their power is somehow declining. They have like intimations of a future decline. I think this is what happened with Putin. I'm actually pretty certain of this uh because there's many indications young people hate him. There were all these polls showing that up to half of age eighteen to twenty four I think Russia's going in the wrong direction. there's a lot of uh anything anyway, so I think that he did one of the things I describe in the book they if they think that they're gonna go down in the future, they get very uh they get very nervous. And they do something that political scientists called gambling for resurrection. They start thinking about their place in history and they want to secure their glory. So they go for broke and they do something that is in in fact reckless because the other part of the syndrome is if you've had too much power for too long, you don't listen to your advisors you have a very small, I call them inner sanctums, where you have family members and sycophants. We had this with the Trump administration too, like Ivanka and Jared. Why were they there? Well, they're there because that's what authoritarians do. Um, <laughs> but they don't... So so what happens is that out over a long time, and Trump was only there four years, Putin's 22 years, they're not getting good intel. They're not getting good advice because they don't want good advice. So we know that this war was not gamed out with his military because he's the expert. So that's that's part of the syndrome. So they make they make mistakes, and they go on these crusades, a big gesture, and it happened to Mussolini, and then he was forced to resign by his own grand council because he entered World War II against the vice, advice of his generals. So then we have Putin. So that's one outcome. Another is that they, if they have a foreign backer, like during the Cold War, Sometimes the foreign backer, uh, like the U.S., gets, gets sick of them and doesn't want to be associated with them. And then they ask, this happened with Mobutu, it happened also with Gaddafi, wasn't backed by the U.S., but they're supposed to liberalize, to save themselves, to give a little more freedom. But constitutionally, strongmen cannot give anybody freedom. And so the other syndrome is the longer they're there, the more repressive they get. And so many of them get forced into exile, or um, they respond with more repression. And so, in Gaddafi's case, uh, he he thought that he he never thought anybody would uh, react against him or or oppose him because he was in his dictator bubble, and he had a very violent public end. Um, so they it rarely end well, um, and that's because. They've had too much power for too long, and they become blinded.
0: So, when you look at history, um, when strongmen fall, how does the country move from authoritarianism to democracy? So, like, what allowed Germany and Italy, for example, to reverse course, wipe away authoritarianism, and then promote the ideals of democracy?
2: You know, one one interesting thing is um, we have those examples from the fascists uh, who then we had democracies, but the, the norm is actually not always democratization. And this is a sad, this is a lesson where we really shouldn't let these people get power in the first place because over 50% of the time, you don't have democracy. You have either chaos, look at Libya, <laughs> Or you have another form of authoritarianism, different, softer maybe, but you don't have democracy. And basically, it, the democracy is either such a distant memory or the culture has gone away. And so that's, that's a problem. But where it has worked, uh, with Germany, you had aggressive denazification. And Italy had the resistance and so that became uh, a way for people to feel that they were able to rise up against fascism and that helped them, you know, go ahead to a democracy. Or you have a negotiated outcome like Franco Spain's very interesting because he won the dictator dictator lottery because he died of natural causes in his own country (laughs) after terrorizing people for 36 years but they did a deal so they had a negotiated transition to democracy but the price was there was going to be a total amnesia about franco's crimes there would be no uh, truth commissions no litigation and everybody would just like turn the page so that every country has a different outcome and they're very very interesting to study
1: so uh, you mentioned prosecution and what you're saying now is also the same thing: is to make sure that the truth does come out. Uh, of course, I am particularly interested in prosecution, as someone who, of course, is a prosecutor, basically, and who was involved in the prosecution of a former president. What are your thoughts about January? And when I say that, I'm talking loosely, because I believe that the threat to democracy arose much before January 6th. It arose even before the election, as they talked about. Uh, I can't lose this unless it's fraudulent. And, and frankly, it's continuing mm-hmm. to as You still have Donald Trump and many of his supporters still saying there's election fraud. Um, Steve Miller, uh, not, um, not Steve Miller, uh, Miller, no, no Mil- Miller, um, his chief speechwriter, um, when he testified was saying, oh, no, it's really true that there is fraud, even though there's absolutely no evidence of it. So talk about what the importance of holding Donald Trump accountable through prosecution is. And and, and let me just add, I also think that had we been able to indict Richard Nixon, that maybe this would have had a different outcome right now. I I don't know for sure. And I'd like your opinion because Mm -hmm. I think Donald Trump is so um, delusional or so into his own belief of himself that he would have still believed he could get away with it. Even if we had, you know, prosecuted Mm -hmm. in addition to his being forced to resign uh, being Nixon. Um,
2: I think prosecution is absolutely crucial. Because it's, it's proven actually, uh, you know, strongmen, their whole, everything they do is designed to show that they're invincible. They're untouchable by the law. They, um, they just, they, they're, or, or that there will be violent retribution and they scare people, intimidation. So one of the only ways uh, this happened with Berlusconi is a very interesting case. So he, he did, he was so corrupt. I can't even, it would take me an hour to enumerate the ways he was corrupt. Numerous bribery trials, fraud, sex scandals. And he was finally forced to resign in 2011, Berlusconi, uh, because of a, the Eurozone crisis. So none of his scandals made him resign, but he had to resign but his personality cult and his myth and his influence continued on until in 2013, he was actually convicted. He never served time because he was too old and he got community service, but he was banned from running for office for five years. That is what made his uh, personality cult deflate and with it, his the strength of his party. Um, and you have to have prosecution because it shows, it shows his followers that who that he is not immortal, that he is not untouchable, that he can be held accountable. Um, it restores t- trust and faith in the public. Um, the media has to report it because it's a thing. It just it's a it's very important to shift the culture and have some kind of accountability and justice. So that people can, who have become very disillusioned with, because that's what people like Trump are designed to do. Everything that they do is designed to depress you, and make you disillusioned and helpless. So prosecution restores some hope in the system, in the rule of law. So I I I can't I I feel so strongly about this uh, because it's backed up by historical fact too.
1: So thank you. I I'm certainly on board with that, and there I have a lot more questions, and we're running out of time, so I'm going to try to ask some quick ones. But one of the things that you've talked about is that, um, and and this was there was an interview of you in Politico by Michael Cruz, um, mm-hmm. and you talk about Donald Trump's legacy enduring, both in the voters and the Republican Party, and. You suggested that the GOP has become an authoritarian, no dissent allowed within the party. You can't criticize, obviously, Donald Trump. Uh, and you expressed concern that Trump's sway over the GOP has permanently transformed the party um, and and even suggested that if it's not him, there are others in the waiting that will continue his authoritarian streak. So- and yet you remained hopeful. So and I want to end on the hopeful part but first let's talk about this mm-hmm. what's happened to the GOP and is there any hope for it?
2: Yeah, it's really and again, I think my my strength in this is that I'm not a historian of America. I honestly didn't pay that much attention to the GOP beyond being an informed voter for many many years. So I really look at the dynamics and what has happened to that party and how it behaves with the eyes of somebody who studies autocracy and unfortunately it checks all the boxes so it's very important that you can't that there is a true there truly is a party line now <laughs> and you can't dice you can't dissent from that party line it's not just that You attack external enemies. You now, uh, like people who voted to impeach Mm -hmm. Trump the second time, they had to buy body armor. These are Republican Congress, you know, people. That is authoritarian. Or when Tucker Carlson uh, brought uh, Ted Cruz, a senator, on his um, show and humiliated him because Ted Cruz made the mistake of calling January 6th a terrorist operation. And Ted and and he had and it was very what I found so authoritarian about this is for Tucker Carlson. The fact that Cruz was a senator didn't matter at all because he had violated the party line. And this is the legacy of Trump. So, you know, the GOP was already an, an intolerant and illiberal uh, party. But what Trump did is to give this loyalty, all the things we've talked about, the leader cult, the loyalty, the unified messaging or else. And, and so look at how so many characters inside the party, like Kevin McCarthy or Lindsey Graham, they've all transformed to be part of this Trump cult. Um, And that also is a sign of Trump's success in, in this. So it's very scary. And the final point is that when you have somebody like Trump who shows a way forward and normalizes extremism and allows people, uh, you'll, you'll relate to this point, he legitimizes lawlessness. He rewards people for breaking the law. Um, you get imitators. And, and so I see, I'm focusing a lot on Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who is, has absorbed all of Trump's lessons, but he's younger, he's smoother, he doesn't have a lot of the baggage of Trump but he's doing very kind of autocratic things there in Florida and he wants to surpass the master. So the system, from my view, it's like if you look at it as a system, the party, the state, it gets permanently transformed from somebody like Trump showing the way.
1: So tell me how you are optimistic that democracy will prevail that something will happen that neither Donald Trump will ascend in twenty twenty four or Ron DeSantis, and yeah. that we will return to the values that have been the foundation of our country for well since its founding.
2: So sometimes you you have to go through uh, many countries that have had successful democracy movements, unfortunately have had to see democracy partly taken away before enough people wake up. Um, I don't know if we're going to uh, have a broad-based democracy movement, including nonviolent protests, because that was very, you know, the Black Lives Matter protests, which were multiracial, intergenerational, uh, involved something like 20 million people. If you look at all the events that directly gave an energy toward voter turnout, that, that brought in Biden. And so I don't know if we will get it together before the midterms, because that's just, you know, it's not that many months away, but we have time before 2024. And as things happen state by state that take our rights away, I think they'll, and and so many people in this country, and I wish the media would f- feature them. There's so many democracy heroes and we really need heroes. Uh, I, myself, focus on the bad people. But I have a chapter in my book on resistance, and I honor a lot of heroes uh, who, you know, give an example and inspire people. Because I think that just as we did something very unusual in voting out Trump, he's an autocrat on his way to capturing power, and we voted him out. And of course, he's full of revenge waiting to come back. I think that we have everything we need in theory to prevail again.
1: I hope you're right. I'm not sure we can afford to lose in the midterms because I think that enough no. damage can be done should that happen between then and 2024. I, I, all
2: kinds of scary things can yeah. happen. Yeah. So, I, I but agree. I want to
1: end on a happy note, which is that there is at least a good chance in 2024 that. Sanity will return to the country and democracy will prevail. So let's end on that note with many thanks for your sharing your time with us today. It has been frightening because the comparisons between the terrible strongmen of the past and the terrible strongmen of today is so obvious that everyone should read your book and see it for themselves. Um, It's a terrific book, and obviously you're a terrific Mm -hmm. guest. So thank you very much, Ruth, for being with us. We appreciate it.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you so much for watching or listening to this episode of iGen Politics with Ruth Ben Gia. We hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We'll be back next week with another episode of iGen Politics, so be sure to subscribe to us on YouTube, follow us wherever you follow your podcasts, and catch another episode next Wednesday.